and we need to understand how those recommendations are made so we can have those stories because we don't want to be the person responsible for any technology purchase when we can't make sense of why things were recommended. Welcome to Unmiss, your go-to digital marketing hub. I'm Anatoly Ulatovsky, here with expert tips and exclusive chats to boost your online game. Let's get started. Hello, good people. Welcome to our show. Hello, bad people. Welcome to our show. Hello, guys. Welcome. Today, we are going to discuss more about navigating go-to-markets, how to do it, how you can get results, how you can consider, adapt, change everything that you have, and how to learn uh, new markets, competitors, clients, many other insights. I'm so excited to discuss this topic with Chris Moody. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, doing great. We chatted a little bit before the podcast. Why we have the podcast? And yeah, it's more about learning. Uh, I'm student on this life, and uh, I love learning from great experts like you to get new insights, to change, to adapt. Because in marketing, it's very important to adapt fast. Whatever you have, even if you have great strategies that work well today, it doesn't mean that you can get great results tomorrow. Marketing is a quickly changing world. For example, even AI. I checked studies that uh, only 25% of all occupations adapted to AI. In marketing, 100%. Everyone is there. Chris, before we start, just tell more about yourself, experience, background, and anything that can help our listeners to learn more about you. Sure. Uh, I've been in marketing a long time, pretty much two decades for the for the most part. Um, I've always been a marketing dork. I care about the profession. Like I believe that the more we help each other get better, the better the industry performs. So huge advocate for rising tides, raise all boats type of thing. Um, most relevant to this conversation, I was an analyst at a company called Topo several years ago, and we studied the fastest growing companies in the world. So we were a research and advisory firm. We worked with high growth SaaS. We were helping them with all their go-to-market strategy. Many of them were moving into account-based. So trying to be more targeted, spend more time and attention and money with the accounts most likely to buy. We were acquired by Gartner. And then uh, a couple years later, I, I'm at demand-based. So now I'm doing much of the same thing, helping folks with go-to-market and account-based strategy and, and certainly living a lot of what you were saying, where many of the things that got us here are not working the way they were before. We're having to adapt every single day. Yeah, love it, love it. Yeah, it's part of our job to adapt, to search for something new. And uh, it's important to focus because it's not like to cover all great channels. Uh, for example, I see it's a big issue with my, many of my clients uh, that they try to copy their competitors. If competitors have strong sites, it doesn't mean that you can overcome them. For example, if I, let's imagine I wanna uh, film videos like Mr. Beast. Can I beat Mr. Beast? Probably not. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. Anything is possible, but it's so, so hard. It's extremely hard. And it doesn't mean it's my strong side. Chris, can you tell about finding the right channel? Uh, because according to data, marketing books, it's important to find where your audience is. Uh, but if it's not your strong side, what to do? For example, if my audience on Instagram, I, I hate the social media. My wife can spend all day <laughs> on Instagram. Uh, my son is on TikTok, but I like the TikTok as well. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, like, uh, how to find 
the right channel considering your strong side yeah absolutely it's a good point i mean many of us came up through content marketing social marketing we've been on this wave multiple times and it is cyclical it always comes back right um you do have to know where your audience is i mean there's no substitute for that and we have to adapt to where they are we can't be everywhere at once we know that when we benchmark account base we know that there are multiple channels required we have to be in a lot of places but if you're a b2b organization i could bet a sizable amount with a high degree of confidence that we're going to have to work email we're going to have to work linkedin we're going to have to work the phone it's not going away ai may make it easier it may supplement the process there are a lot of things where ai is going to help us but at the end of the day people buy from people i know that there's research to say you know the buying process will be more automated i know that that's out there but i still think people are a differentiator because you want to buy from someone you trust so that's the most important part of the channel conversation to me it's not just where can we get the most transactions where can we get the most conversions i know that's where our brains go as marketers many of us but it's where can we actually build those relationships get to know them help solve their problems and understand what we should be solving for them mm-hmm. nice i think in the future when companies will sell something to uh, terminators then yeah we, we can <laughs> ignore human touch uh, emotions <laughs> but 75% of all decisions uh, are emotions can you tell how to touch this part how to create content or marketing messages by touching emotions first yeah i mean storytelling will never go away it's a very commonsensical thing to say we have to tell better stories but we live that at every brand we've ever worked with every client we have even looking around my office there are stories all throughout my office right you can look around and you know i can tell you about this let me find the way which way are we going that basketball right that basketball is from 1986 i was a guest for a game uh i'm a huge duke basketball fan i'm a cancer survivor i was treated for leukemia at duke i was carried in the locker room by jay billis i got to sit on the bench with the team coach k signed it the poster right here is from coach k when they won the national championship all of these little cues are stories that i could tell to someone to build rapport to build trust depending on what we're talking about So when we talk about emotion, it's the exact same thing. It's how can you tell me about someone like me who solved a problem like mine so that I'll trust you? And we have to be better at telling those stories. I mean, we we need to understand our points of differentiation and all of that good stuff, but we know from research and we live this every single day at Gardner. It's harder to get time and attention from our buyer than ever. And it's not going to get easier. So if we're not relevant, valuable and able to tell those stories, we're never going to get their time. Yeah, exactly. Love it, love it. I have a very curious cat and <laughs> this cat wants to discuss too about <laughs> touching <Yeah>. human emotions <laughs> and he oh. and he can he can touch my emotions right now. <laughs> so Chris, uh let's talk about creating content um we need to create high quality content but uh, quality uh, it's is subjective can you tell what uh, quality means today especially when we have ai all marketers content creators use ai to develop to craft content but how to create 
high quality content by using AI. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an interesting conversation because I do, I use a lot of AI tools. I mean, most of us do, right? And we can't lose our voice in the process of using the tool. So we always need, whether that's spending lots of time actually better training AI to match your voice or knowing the correct prompts. But at the end of the day, I go back to that line, people buy from people. So we have to create valuable content that has a point of view that's going to speak to something different for them. And, you know, if I think about some of the attributes, we have a, a concept called high value offers that we talked about a lot at Topo, at Gartner. We use it a ton at demand base, but we have to be engaging. You can't just have a boring webinar, boring piece yeah. of content, right? Like it will not work. And you know that from doing this show. And, you probably have had some shows where you rank near the top and somewhere you're like, ah, this it's going to be hard to get as much engagement. We have to be engaging to pull people in. We have to be unique. So whether that's proprietary research or a unique customer story, we have to find those things that pull people in to make us different than our competitors. So hard to copy, right? That's an easy way to think about it. Is it hard to copy? Which with AI, some things are easy to copy, right? We could say... Create a design that looks like Aaron Draplin is one of my favorite designers, right? It will go and do that, but it's not going to have some of the same tonality and pull at the heartstrings, but we have to be relevant and timely. Those are the last two that I talk about a lot. And that requires knowing our audience. So there's always a balance of people and AI that have to exist in high quality content. And a lot of folks, when we talk about quality, I think for the last decade, it goes to format. What type of content should we create? Should it be short form or long form? Should we gate it? Should we not gate it? The best content you can create is a great meeting. And it's not sexy. People don't like meetings, right? Like we're trying to create scale and, and build automation and all the things. But the thing that I have seen work the most over the last 10 years is when you can get the right people to a meeting that solves their problem better than anyone else. That's how you win. That's how you're going to sell more. You're going to convert more. And we had one last week where we had 38 executives from one company join a 90 minute meeting. We were trying to bring a lot of value. We had some subject matter experts. We were sharing points of view, what we see in the industry. I think we need to be thinking more like that as creators to figure out what is the most compelling, most important thing to start to pull people in and have those longer conversations that are really solving their business challenges. Awesome. Valuable. C can you tell your methods how to outreach uh, such executives, uh, CEOs <laughs> to one meeting and yeah, and how to engage or bring something that these people need on this meeting? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the stat at Gartner, I believe it was 70% of all sales reps that were surveyed by the sales practice there, their number one challenge was getting time and attention from the buyer. Mm -hmm. That's the first opportunity we're going to get stiff-armed like a football player, like right in the face, pushed to the ground, reaching out. And we saw it when we benchmarked too. So if we went through and benchmarked targeted demand generation, lead to MQL was around 63% conversion rate. So high growth SaaS is very targeted. They know what they're doing. And then when we went to account base, it dropped by almost 20%. So it's harder to get in front of the right accounts and get that engagement. 
Now we could talk about channel. I mean, there's a thing called the triple touch, which most people listening probably know about where a sales rep usually is reaching out on LinkedIn, phone, and email all on the same day within a tightly clustered time period to try to be where they are, be relevant. That's important. But at the end of the day, it's going to come down to how relevant we are and if we're really solving their business challenge. And, and that's the piece where we see things like intent data continuing to be talked about more and a lot of folks still aren't using it to the full capabilities it offers, but we have to know what someone's trying to do, what their challenge is, and when it's timely, and reach out to them about that challenge. So it's taking all that data, all of those signals, and crafting a very valuable message, which, look, that can be done with no tools, that can be done with AI, that can be done with sales engagement platforms, right? Like There are lots of ways to handle that outbound outreach and start to synchronize and orchestrate a lot of the touch points we have. But if we don't really understand our audience and have that data available, we're shooting in the dark and we're going to see lower conversion rates. We're going to get turned down even more. So I, I think that is extremely important, making sure when we can capture signals, like if they're researching a competitor, if you know that someone's researching a competitor, whether that's through a social post or peer tells you like a mutual connections, like, yeah, I know that they're looking at this. What are we going to do with that information? We're not just going to reach out with a standard pitch and say, hey, I'd love to show you how my product works. We're going to try to understand what can we reverse engineer if we already have this information. So that's the piece, right? It's not this new fan dangled thing that people don't know about. It's what the best sellers have done for 100 years, but we have to continue to get better at that. Yeah, love it, love it. Um, I think if you, uh, you remind me this quote, if you sell to everyone, you sell to nobody. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's important to learn your uh, customers, recipients before uh, pitching them. Uh, people, people are impatient and I get, uh, I don't count them plus 100 emails a day, spam emails, uh, they don't know me. Someone can tell, I know you're good with fashion. Me? <laughs> My t-shirt can cost like <laughs> five dollars, you know. <laughs> so yeah, or something similar. Uh, many companies are trying to sell gas posts or other services. I don't need it, you know. I think uh, it's a bad strategy. Uh, if it works for someone, you need to learn uh, your audience before pitching. Yeah, I love it. Can you tell about uh, learning your customers your methods how you do it uh how uh, to consider unique selling proposition because uh, for example i see when companies replicate competitors if the competitors have, uh, sell the same products they create the same marketing message but it doesn't like this you know uh, it's not always because uh, competitors have their unique selling proposition on strong side so tell your methods how to collect data about your customers <laughs> yeah well i mean the first thing i would say there there's almost an infinite amount of data out there and there are so many tools i mean you can pull up the sales or marketing technology landscape and see what 30 50 000 tools that are out there so there is this abundance of information but a couple of things that I always look for. I mean, number one, you want high quality data sources. Everyone struggles with data quality, data integrity. Um, sales and marketing alignment is 
always an issue. It comes up number one in our C-suite survey every single year as the biggest challenge for the C-suite is alignment. And when we double click on that and ask, the first thing is measuring different metrics. And the fourth is different data and different systems. So there are two that start to hit on the data that we're getting and, you know, garbage in, garbage out type of thing. Um, look, this is not me trying to sell demand base, but demand base has a really interesting data set that gives us a lot of information about our accounts, the contacts at those accounts, what they care about, what technology they're using today. Uh, we're working on something called buying groups, which is actually pulling together the right people in the buying committee so that you can target and engage against them. So it's an object that you can action against. So things like that are going to try to take advantage of the data, but um, there's so many sources out there. I mean, we, we try to play nice with everyone. And mm. the, the biggest thing I would say, many organizations, everyone has some combination of their data and external data. Every single company, yeah. right? Yeah. You have your first party and your third party. Every company has that. There's usually not a well-orchestrated way to take advantage of the data you already have. So I would love to talk to anyone and sell them better data and you know talk about the, the value of intent data and really understanding what people are researching. It's extremely important. But the first step is understanding what is all the data that we have and how do we take advantage of that? And I can give you a very quick example. Intent okay. data is talked about a lot. Most folks listening to this if they're at a B2B company, they probably have a, an intent data provider. From my conversations, I feel like about 70% of people who have intent data where they can understand what someone is researching, what they're searching for, and start to see, here's an account with high intent or a person with high intent. About 70% of those folks are just saying, this account has high intent, go after them. And sales goes after them. And then there's about 20% that say this account has high intent for content marketing software or account-based strategy or whatever it is, let's tailor the conversation when sales reaches out to the topic they're searching about, which is already much better than just the, the blind outreach. And then about 10% are starting to pull it into that high value content, the high value meeting and say, okay, we know that this account was looking for account-based strategy. We also know that we have a subject matter expert who used to be an analyst and covered account-based strategy, was on the first account-based magic quadrant. Let's try to get them 30 minutes with that subject matter expert that works here and can talk about this. And then we're going to have an extremely valuable message that we can reach out with to say, hey, not trying to be creepy. We have intent data. We can see that you're researching our competitors. We can see that you care about account-based strategy. I'd love to get you 30 minutes with someone to talk shop, kick the tires, like just talk about what they've seen in the space for a while. We're not going to bring a seller to the call. Just get mm -hmm. you time with a subject matter expert. You're going to see a much higher engagement rate, click-through rate, open rate, meeting booked rate, whatever metric you want to track there. But it's taking advantage of the data in different levels. So all of those, it's the same data that's available. It's how we action against it. So that's the piece that I still think we're not quite there across marketing and sales teams with how we activate a lot of the things we already have. Awesome, valuable. Uh, you remind me one data expert uh, who shared with me that uh, 
we need data. Of course, you mentioned many times about data. I even lost track how many times you mentioned about <laughs> data, but uh, uh, this expert told me uh, about uh, confusing with over data. When you have over data, it might lead you in the wrong direction. Uh, you need to have enough data. And I spoke with a bunch of uh, great experts uh, about data. Uh, and uh, I remember even one interesting story about Jeff Bezos. Once he got um, a research team and this team uh, told him, uh, we need more time to research about this product. Uh, he denied. He told, we have enough data. This product was Alexa. So Jeff Bezos got the feeling it's enough about this product. Today, almost all homes in the US have uh, Alexa. <laughs> uh, and uh, can you tell how to find this balance between collecting enough data uh, and avoiding over data? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a really good point. Um, you know, the uh, the broader term is kind of paralysis by analysis, right? Like, I think we can get in these cycles of trying to pursue perfect. We don't want to just be good enough, but we don't want to strive for absolute perfection. We need to find some happy medium between the two. Um, you know, the data conversation is really interesting because there are, I, I won't say bad sources of data, but some data does not have the integrity of other data. And you may see a higher miss rate of how accurate that data is. So if we think about marketing and sales working together and it's guiding the accounts that are selected for them, their priority accounts, like who they should reach out to. When you reach out to an account and the data is wrong, if you're a seller, you're going to feel like an idiot because you were told this account cares about us, go talk to this account. So what's the first thing the seller is going to do? They're going to come over to marketing if they're in an office or they're going to Slack them or Zoom them or Google Meet them, whatever the tech mm -hmm. is, right? They're going to say, why did you pick this account? I was given this account, it was totally wrong. And too many times the answer is AI, like jazz hands, AI, you know, like there's not believability and transparency of the data. So, you know, the explainability of what is recommended from data sources and AI. So if we think about any tool that's crunching lots of data sources and trying to provide recommendations or insights, I would strongly encourage everyone to make sure that you have transparency to understand why things are happening or how they're happening. Because when that question is asked to a marketer, we actually interviewed a marketing leader at a pretty amazing company called Hexagon. And that was one of her quotes. She said, I don't ever want sales to come to me and say, why did you pick this account? Mm -hmm. And we put it on a slide. I mean, that's a conversation we're having every single week with accounts. We need to be able to answer that and say, okay, I get it. That was not someone who was ready, but here were the three attributes that told us we thought they were a good account. Like this is why they were recommended in our tool. So there's, there's kind of the data quality, data integrity conversation, but then there's also the when recommendations are made from the data, do you understand why and how, and can you tell that story? And both are equally important because when we talk about alignment, 
it's touchy feely stuff like communication and are we talking to each other and can we actually have those conversations? So that's one thing that I would always encourage, right? Like we could certainly um, talk about the merits of running things through data integrity solutions, trying to clean all your data, trying to merge leads to accounts, like things that have existed for a long time in our industry. I mean, those things are all very important, but at the end of the day, most folks are probably starting to use tools that are making recommendations for what they should do. And we need to understand how those recommendations are made so we can have those stories because we don't want to be the person responsible for any technology purchase when we can't make sense of why things were recommended. Yeah, valuable, valuable. Love it, love it. Chris, I want to ask about uh, mistakes. You know, I, I made a lot of mistakes. I keep doing them. You know, uh, I usually start from pay best practices, generic strategies, nothing special, then I fail. All the time, without any exception, I fail. When I started PR, I failed with all my press releases. I don't remember exactly the number, how many I wrote, but a lot. And I pitch all of them, failed all the time. Then I learn how it works. I learned the process. I hired great experts who can write press releases. I hired experts who can pitch them. And yeah, we built the process uh to get links on cnn uh business insider uh many great websites uh and i want to ask about mistakes that you have from your experience and uh tips for my audience how to avoid such mistakes oh you can't avoid all mistakes of course it's part of the process to make mistakes to lose to lose money to uh waste time but it helps to acquire experience but if you have mistakes that we can avoid that companies or people still do from your experience list them <laughs> yeah sure i mean you know if we if we try to concentrate mostly around go-to-market strategy and we we kind of put blinders on across all the mistakes that we could potentially make mistakes i have made plenty um we could talk about hey i've got four kids i've been married 14 years lots of mistakes in that process too i could share those but if we focus on go-to-market the first mistake that I actually see happen a ton is when we're not directly mapping everything we do to the overarching business objectives. Again, it sounds common sense. It sounds like something every single person should do. But any planning session, I almost think it should start with, hey, if it's a whiteboard or a digital collaboration tool or whatever, write down the big company objectives at the top, what's our focus, and then make sure that everything we do ladders up to that. Another huge mistake that we continue to see is around alignment. And so many organizations have different departments, different parts of the organization that have their own business goals. They do ladder up together to unified goals, but they're so busy trying to crush their goals that they're not really aligned across all the different goals of the or other departments and thinking, how do we work together? How do we make this happen? And one very specific example, we've seen this and uh, as an analyst, we saw this in a lot of different companies. And there was one in particular, I remember they had different metrics for success at three stages of the funnel. So they would kind of group top, middle, bottom of funnel and top of funnel was net new accounts and lead growth and getting MQLs and a lot of the things that we've done for a long time in marketing. So there was a team responsible for MQL growth. Middle of funnel 
was more their account-based part of their go-to-market strategy. So it was reaching out to those net new target accounts and trying to get net new revenue from high priority accounts. And then bottom of funnel was sales and it was revenue. Mm-hmm. But sales could hit their revenue number through cross-sell, upsell, and retention. So what happens in that case, right? Metrics drive behavior. Mm-hmm. So you have sellers who say, it's easier for me to make President's Club and hit my number to cross-sell, upsell, retain. I'm going to cross-sell, upsell, retain. They did not have a metric that required them to also care about net new business growth. So then middle of the funnel, you had the account-based team. It's like, what the heck? Nobody cares about getting net new accounts. Like That's the hard part. Why don't people care about that? And then top of funnel, they were hitting their MQL number and filling the funnel with marketing qualified leads. So they were high-fiving at the bar. Sales was at President's Club. And then you had a team in the middle. Like, what's going on, guys? So there are very common mistakes in define success metrics. So a shared vision of success. That's a huge one. Alignment's coming up every single day. Every single day. And then, you know, along the lines of where we started, like a a lot of the stuff that got us here doesn't work the way it used to. It's just not as easy. The the content marketing, inbound marketing, a lot of it is much more difficult than it was before. And I do think marketers are more prone to chase shiny objects than some other professions. Like we do love going after the next big thing. And we don't spend as much time focusing on doing our jobs better because there's always something else to keep up with. So to your point earlier about what channel, right? Yeah. You might rush to TikTok or rush to Instagram before you master the channels you're already on. And that's going to create technical debt that goes with you as you move into everything else because you never fully maximized. And that's what we've actually seen in in this profession, right? Marketing automation. Everyone loved Marketo, Eloqua, HubSpot. It was all the rage, right? Pardot was acquired. You know, those were the days. Everyone talked about marketing automation. And then very, very quickly, everyone assumes that we figured it all out and we don't talk about marketing automation. And then it's account-based. Like, okay, you know, demand-based, Six Sense, you know, Rollworks, like all these other companies. Let's go out and get account-based software. And then we run to account-based. And then what's the next thing, right? Like sales engagement platforms were kind of the next big wave. Let's all run out and get sales engagement platforms. Most still haven't figured out how to fully optimize marketing automation. So every single step, we haven't been fully efficient. And then in my opinion, I think buying groups are the next big thing. I mean, we we hit on that a little bit, right? Like if leads are too small and accounts are too big, Buying groups are just right in that part in the middle. And I think that's going to be the next big change for go-to-market teams. So if we think about all those mistakes, let's try to get our house in order, try to improve everything we're already doing, try to be better aligned, try to make sure that we're good corporate stakeholders in every department's success. And then we can start to think about what's next. What do we need to continue to do? Yeah, nice. Agree. Um, Salespeople often hide data from marketers. It's not a good idea because uh, results depend on this data. And uh, you mentioned about su- success metrics. I, I want to confess, I didn't meet before that <laughs> this t- terminology, success metrics. Uh, I often see when companies chase value metrics like volume, uh, 
трафик, сейлс, not sales, I mean, uh, traffic, likes, comments, but it doesn't help to sell products, uh, even if you get a million traffic. Uh, and um, I remember when one webmaster lost 400k traffic from Google because Google dropped his ranking positions, but he didn't lose any sales. So he got a lot of traffic. Uh, he spent time, resources to create this traffic, to get it. And then Google dropped and nothing changed. <laughs> sales are the same. So this traffic didn't sell. Why you need to have this traffic if, if it doesn't help you to grow business? Uh, can you tell how to divide success metrics from value metrics or all metrics? Uh, yeah, it's interesting about that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I mean, as you described that and we're building to the question, I, I bet there were a lot of marketers that felt seen and heard as you were <laughs> going through that. Because, I mean, I vividly remember early in my career fighting metrics like how many blog posts per week I would mm -hmm. need to create or how many social posts per week. Now, directionally, it came from a good place. It was saying we need to be constant. We need to be regular. We need to be on a schedule. We need to be consistent in our communication, right? I got it, but it didn't drive the business. We saw no correlation between 10 blog posts per week and two blog posts per week. The two could have been the best two posts. And then the eight were kind of meh, right? Like there are always metrics that conflict with cause correlation and how things should work. So, you know, that's the first part, right? The rise of revenue operations, marketing ops, sales ops, like all those functions, I think they can certainly dial us in on the metrics that matter for the business. I encourage everyone to have those conversations. Um, we just went through a, a shared presentation exercise for our sales leader and our marketing leader. And we were thinking about what are the conversations that they should have on stage? If the two of them were together, what metrics would they talk about? And we were able to distill it down to, you know, five key metrics. Now there are a ton more, but if we think about the shared version of success, the five that ended up there on the slide, which this is subject to change, we may have 10, right? We want to have a small number, yeah. but it was total pipeline creation. You know, if we're all focused on pipeline, that's driving good behavior. There are good habits that come from focusing on pipeline. It was looking at the conversion rates. So what's working, what's not, it's not perfect attribution. I, I will die on that hill. OK, I, I, we have to invest in our brand. We're continuing to ramp up our brand. We have some cool stuff in the works, but uh, brand driven companies always perform better from my experience as an analyst. So if I put my analyst hat back on. Stronger the brand, I bet you their performance is going to be better. We were also looking at um, customer acquisition costs like the payback period, lifetime value ratios, that type of thing average sales cycle. So are we accelerating deals or is it getting longer? We can do that by segments and then average deal size. So those were five metrics, like the one I kind of grouped and added a couple more with the LTV and CAC, right? But, but if we're thinking about those metrics together, it's a shared version of success. And one thing that we did have happen multiple times at Topo we would have demand gen leaders who actually change their compensation structure. So variable comp used to be on MQL goals, like how many marketing quali qualified leads they have to drive or what percentage growth. And that would determine the percentage of their bonus that they achieve. We had a couple of very brave demand gen leaders to say, that's not the right metric. 
it should be pipeline or sales qualified leads. Like I can't be successful before things get to sales. So it forced the right behavior. And to me, that's how I would start to segment some of the vanity metrics and some of the things that different departments care about. They are important. They tell different stories. We need to be able to tell those stories, even with account based. Like one thing that's often skipped over, we need to tell early success stories. So we can't just wait a year for closed one revenue or however long your sales cycle is. We need to find those wins, like booking key meetings with key accounts and some of the things where someone might put that in the vanity metric category, but it tells a very important story of incremental success and what we're building towards. So those things are still very important, but the directional guidance I would have is, you know, marketing, sit down with sales and find the parts of the Venn diagram in your metrics that overlap that you both care about and spend more time focusing on those and then report back on what the collaboration feels like. I guarantee you it's going to be better. Uh, valuable. Well explained. Chris, I want to ask a few personal questions um, about your energy. I, I see you, you're confident. You have this energy and it's important, you know, I think in marketing, if you have no energy or passion, it's better to leave it, to find something else. When someone can tell me marketing is boring. No, it's not boring. It's fun. It's valuable. It's interesting, enjoyable. Uh, uh, if he, it's boring for you, leave it, find something else. For example, Warren Buffett once uh, said about Elon Musk, it's boring for him to, uh, to develop this uh, electric cars or uh, space uh, crafts, anything. Elon Musk said, it's boring for me to uh, calculate this data like Warren Buffett. Yeah, uh, so you need to find your field. And uh, I opened your LinkedIn profile and I found four resources, how you get your energy for kids. I see on your background, you know, uh, and I want to ask about your discipline. Okay. I'm pretty sure kids can motivate, encourage us, but it takes time to pay attention to family and your business uh, job. Can you tell how you find this balance between family and job? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I will answer that question. One thing I, I will acknowledge too, um, leadership makes a big difference and and what that balance is and establishing the balance. There are some who will argue there's no such thing as balance, that it's always kind of blended. Yeah. Um, we have a new chief marketing officer, Kelly Hopping. I mean, she has a book about being your true self at work and she she's very outspoken. You know, my boys play football, they play baseball. Here's when I'm gone. Like these are the times where I'm gone. So for me personally, I think that matters. I mean, you need folks setting the tone and making people feel that it's okay, which is ridiculous to say out loud, yeah. but people need to feel that it's okay to balance the two. And I remember when I was getting my MBA, there was a leader from a very well-known company, which I will not say. And um, that individual spoke to us and said, you're going to have to miss things with your family if you want to be successful. You're going to have to do all these and sacrifice this. And I, I think it's broken. I don't think that's true at all. Um, I, I feel like I'm an A plus dad. Most of the time around a B plus husband, I can get better at the husband part. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm pretty self-aware of that. But um, like, you have 
have to love what you do. Everyone says, like, if yeah. you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. You know, I don't believe that. Like, it's work. There are days where it's more fun than other days. But I know some things about myself. I'm pretty self-aware. Like, I have to have adrenaline hits in my job. And what's an adrenaline hit, you may ask? Like, it's talking to customers, talking to prospects, talking to you, right? This gives me energy. I know that I have to flip the switch and be on. It's different than if I'm in deep work and in content. And some days I have all that, right? I color code my calendar for that. So green is customer or prospect. Like when I have to be on, I see a green meeting. I'm like, got to fix my hair today. Got to be in a nice shirt. Like, let's go. You know, I prepare for that. Um, The balance portion, I, I try, I have not missed a single birthday of all four kids so far. And I do travel quite a bit for work. Like I put that on my calendar I will do anything in my power to make sure that I'm home for that. Anything. Like I I will go somewhere and fly home, fly back the next day if I have to. Like I I haven't reached a time yet where it was impossible for me to not keep that promise, right? Like there's always a way. A lot of times I think we are conditioned to feel like, work is this big, huge blocker and we can't be ourselves at work. And I was nowhere near as successful in my career when I was the buttoned up corporate version of myself. Like I may put on a buttoned up shirt, but the energy is not me flipping the switch. Like I I enjoy what I do. I enjoy the people I do that with. I enjoy our prospects, our customers, even deals we lose. Like I enjoy talking to those folks and trying to help them. I like helping the profession. I love being a dad. I love trying to figure that out every day. I coach baseball and basketball. Uh, I coach two baseball teams at the same time for both of my boys. Like it, So that was four nights a week at the ball field, and I had to miss two or three games through the season across two teams because of travel, and you figure that out. But those are things I draw energy from. So I, I think you have to be self-aware about how you work. Because everyone works differently. So to me, I don't, I don't necessarily shut work brain off ever. And I never shut dad or husband brain off ever. The lines are constantly blurred for me. Now, I don't compromise the integrity of my work. But at the same time, when everyone's asleep, if there's something I can do to get ahead of the next day, if I'm not tired, like, I'll work from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. and get some stuff done, right? Like, that's okay. But that's not me, like, I'll work so many hours. I'm going to brag about it on Slack. (laughs) It's not that. It's saying if I transfer some of that time now, then when I hit 4.30 the next day, I can go out and throw football with the kids or something. Like, There's always a trade-off. And the part that I think is the most important It's really knowing yourself and what you care about. I mean, I I have friends and I don't judge them at all, but I have friends where they need, you know, eight to six as an escape. And it's Mm -hmm. like, I need to be away from everyone from this time, right? The lines are blurred for me and that works with my freakish brain. Like my brain works that way. It doesn't, when things intersect and cross, I'm okay with it. It's fine. But when I see green on my calendar, that's go, you know, that's like doors locked. Don't come in. Three of my kids can pick locks, but still, they know when the door is locked. Like, don't go in unless it's an emergency or someone's bleeding, kind of thing. So that's what I would stress to everyone. I mean, 
you can debate if it's balanced or if there's only a certain number of things you can prioritize. Like we've all read the books. We all know the stuff, but I, I, I'll be pretty direct. Like I look down on people Mm -hmm. that don't find a way to prioritize their loved ones. I'll leave it at that. Like I would not work for someone that I don't think is a good parent or a a good partner. Right. Like that's important to me. And that sets the tone. Like who we are as leaders makes everyone else more comfortable being them true, their true selves at work. And I don't think there is anything more important because you do the depressing math, right? Like when you have a kid, you have 18 summers, you have 18 holiday seasons, right? Like, and then they're all, they're gone, dude. Like when are they going to come back? Hopefully a lot. Right. But it happens so fast. It happens so fast. So if you're not able to find that healthy balance for you, it's different for everyone. You're going to look back and completely regret the decisions you make because there's no amount of zeros in a bank account that will replace missing things. And I love people that are open about that and acknowledge that I'm a big believer in vulnerability, radical candor. Like I, everyone knows the stuff I have going on in my personal life. When there's something big going on, like I talk about it. It's okay. You know, we've, we've been through miscarriages. It took us multiple years to get to our fourth, right? Like we ran into challenges and setbacks and I'm okay talking about that. And that leads to more people talking about it, right? Like that's what I would encourage everyone to do. Like tip the domino in the right direction and then watch what happens. It's going to be good. Awesome. Very inspirational. I love it. Love it. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, according to data, 70% of people hate their jobs. It's a lot. And um, I remember one book offer, uh, famous book offer, uh, shared a story when another book offer reached out and asked for advice what to do because he couldn't sell his books for a long time. He's not successful with that. And he he's suffering a lot. And she replied to him, leave it. It's not your job. <laughs> if you uh, suffer to write books, why you decided it's your direction? Film something, you know, record podcast, uh, find something else. And uh, I disagree when com- someone can tell when you want to build build business, you need to sacrifice your uh, hobbies. No, my job is my hobby. You know, I don't sacrifice any hobbies because I can work on Sunday evening, Saturday night. I don't care. <laughs> I love it. It's the same like watching TV. And uh, uh, of course, I have something that I like more, like playing basketball. I love playing basketball, but basketball doesn't pay money, you know, uh, for, um, doesn't pay my bills. But uh, I love my job, uh, my job too. So I can play basketball to leave all my energy there. Then I can g- get back and <laughs> work with my job with my second passion. So yeah, I agree. Love it, love it, Chris. And I have my final question. Sure. Uh, it's, uh, I often get this question uh, about uh, starting from scratch. And let me explain who uh, usually ask this question. The first students who want to learn from scratch according to uh, our environment. Many things change and they don't want to learn something obsolete. Uh, the second, uh, business owners who want to get the basic before cooperating with experts and uh, i often see when uh, companies make uh, wrong choices to find uh, experts because of uh, price because of many things it's not good idea uh, usually i skip 
checking prices, <laughs> uh, I search for experience, real experience. Then I can cooperate and uh, think, can I uh, afford this price or not? Anyway, uh, I want to ask you, if you started today from scratch without any experience, knowledge, skills, it's your first day. Forget about your experience in marketing. First day, what will you do if you start from scratch? Yeah, I I like that question. I, I like that one a lot. It's um, It requires some flex, reflection to, to answer it. And, you know, when, one thing that I told my brother-in-law when he was in college, so this was many years ago, he's been very successful since, but he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do and had an internship that was about to end. And my advice to him, he liked the work. So that's the first thing, like find some things you like and then throw yourselves at those things. When you go back to the starting point, the variables are different. You don't have to provide for a family of four. You don't have to pay a mortgage payment probably, right? If we go back to the starting point. So we have a different set of constraints to work with. And my guidance to him was, you're doing a great job at your internship. Tell them that you'll work for free when it ends, that you want to keep helping them and you hope that something will become available, but you don't want the project to stop. And, and you know, there's always that way, work for free. Think about it. If you're the employer and someone says, I, I love this. I want it to be better. I don't need the money right now. I need the experience. Let me keep coming in. Is that okay? He was hired pretty quickly, right? I, I don't think they even let him work for free. It's probably not even legal these days, right? But <laughs> philosophically, it's that principle of put yourself into your passion and then just watch what happens. Because if you know, think about a world where you don't have as many bills to pay or people to provide for, how would you handle it? And that's one thing I would do, right? Like I, I would take on as many projects as I can, figure out the things that I love, find what gives you the adrenaline hit that makes you feel like it's less like work, more like something you're considered a hobby or love to do, and then throw yourself at it. And that's going to lead to a lot of amazing connections. And um, even the story, well, I don't know how we're cropped, but if you can see the the wrestling championship belt back there, right? That's from uh, Fantasy Football League mm -hmm. with a lot of speakers and authors. So many of the books around me, those are folks who I networked with early on in my career and tried to ask them for advice and then watch them crush it with a blog and crush it with a podcast and then start charging 30 grand to talk to speak. They chose that as their passion but they were always willing to share expertise. So if you don't put yourself out there, you, you never know what you're capable of, who goes on to do great things because the world gets small. So I'd throw myself at things that I like to do. I remember that you don't have a ton of constraints. So maybe that's starting a business. Maybe it's doing something else, shadow network, reach out for mentors, all of those things, because once you've been doing it for 20 years, that's the biggest value you bring. To the experience conversation, right? It's what you've learned and who you know and how you tap into all those things together. So it's always a social currency transaction of helping each other. And if you're a good person and you treat people well, it's pretty easy, right? It, after this, if you reached out to me and said, hey, Chris, you're connected to so-and-so, I'd love to get them on the podcast. 
what do you think I'm going to say? I'm going to say, sure, I'll send them a note. And I'll say, yeah, look, 40, 40 to 60 minutes of your time. It's going to be a great prep document. Join and talk shop, right? Like I am willing to do that because now we know each other. So that's what I would encourage anyone at the starting point or, or career change, whatever it is. Like find what you love, find the smart people, study them, not stalk them, like right? research them. Don't stalk, research, mm -hmm. connect, get to know. And then you're gradually going to be that sponge that's absorbing information at every step. And it just gets easier that way. Awesome. Valuable. So valuable. I love it. Love it. I think um, uh, you you highlighted practice, real practice, then uh, learning. Uh, you can overlearn, but if you do nothing, you get nothing. <laughs> and we have this short memory. Uh, people usually forget about new insights for a few days. I can forget for a few hours. Just tell me something new. But I usually make notes. Uh, I write down because of my short memory. And the second, uh, it's more important to test and experiment then learn new stuff how it works and yeah i started my journey from uh low payments uh if i remember correctly like i got 200 dollars for my consulting services uh but it's not about money that was about to acquire experience how you can charge a lot without experience when you can provide something different, unique, much better than your competitors. When you can lead businesses in the right direction, then you can ask a lot more. But without experience, it's almost impossible. Chris, I love it. So valuable. Uh, thanks a lot for taking part of my podcast, sharing all these valuable bombs. You let me to an emergency room. I need to spend time to consume all this data. <laughs> Tell the best way how to keep learning from you, how to reach out to you, how to follow you. Yeah, sure. Uh, definitely reach out on LinkedIn. I, I'm not the most prolific content creator there, but I'm always there to help. So send a connection, put in the personalized invitation that you saw the podcast just for context. That will help me. Then I'll know where you came from and always here. So don't hesitate to reach out. It's just linkedin.com slash n slash Chris Moody. Super easy to find. Awesome. Awesome. Guys, you can find the link in the description below. I recommend to follow Chris on LinkedIn because I follow, I need more valuable insights. It's hard to share all value in one podcast, but if you follow, you can learn a lot more. Okay, guys, love you. See you. Thanks for tuning in to Unmiss. Enjoyed the show? Drop us a review on your favorite platform and help us spread the digital marketing wisdom. See you next episode.